Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Uh, I I often don't speak about missions to people who actually uh, believe in missions. (laughs) Uh, I mostly work in the social sciences where most of the people that I talk to, uh, missions makes them feel uncomfortable. Um, But I try and measure the long-term effect that they had historically and statistically um, and measure it in a way that's convincing to people who um, don't like missions. Um, and within the social sciences, there's a lot of interest in things about why, why are some countries more economically developed than others? Why are some countries more democratic than others? Why do some people, countries have uh, greater inequality or less inequality, more education, better health incomes, etc.? And... Um, I argue that at least some of this, and a significant portion of this, has to do with religion, and has to do with Christianity, and has to do with the role of missionaries, and particularly Protestant missionaries. Um, But how do you test something like that? So it might be like, oh, I'm interested in thinking, and I think this because I like missions, or whatever. Um, But how how do we test that? So one of the things that I do is I try and look at global comparative historical patterns, and look at what missionaries did in particular countries around the world, and not only what they did, but how that shaped the behavior of other people. So their effect is not only what they did directly, but also what they did, how that shaped the behavior of others. And then I try and measure it statistically. We'll have some statistics here. I'll explain it in a way that's easy to understand. Unfortunately, some of it will be a little bit small, and so you may not be able to see all of it. But I'll I'll explain it to you in a way that if you don't know anything about statistics, you'll at least understand the basic idea. Um, and also with maps and other things like that. And so I look at differences between countries, differences within countries, differences over time, and also things that are called natural experiments. So things, for example, that missionaries were blocked from going to a particular place, and there's like a line that they were not allowed to cross, and then looking at exactly on either side of that line to see the the effect that missions has has had. So one thing that I've done is um, I've collected data on all the Protestant mission stations, around the world from the 1820s through the 1920s. And I know the exact longitude and latitude of those places and what was at those stations. So then I can locate the data of what the missionaries were doing to particular locations. Um, For Catholics, a little bit more complicated. Um, They give you data according to things that are ecclesiastical jurisdictions, like dioceses and archdioceses. Now, there's lots of different names. I won't go into them. Um, Those are a little bit harder because they're a region. They're not a point. So like a point, a mission station, I can fit that in any modern country or any modern state or any modern province or any modern city. This, a, a jurisdiction is bigger. It could be bigger than a country. So sometimes I have to estimate the distribution of Catholic missions between those spaces. Um, so then I reconstructed the history of every Catholic ecclesiastical jurisdiction back to 1500. So I know the exact dates when the borders change, and then I know what the borders are based on papal documents. And then I overlap those with censuses and other things. So this is Mexico. This is a a jurisdiction in Mexico, which is then overlapping with municipalities. It's too small, so you can't see that. But it actually is marked every populated place, every church, every urban area, etc., are on these maps, which are then directly linked so that we can link the Catholic data with the census data and with Protestant data and other things like that through time. Now, one of the issues that you have to worry about is I'm going to say, like, well, Protestant missions or Catholic missions had this effect. One of the things you have to deal with, though, is like, well, why did missionaries go here rather than there? 
Maybe missionaries went to places that were already better off, and then there are more of them there, and then I say they caused that effect that they didn't cause, it caused them to move there. So think of it like this. Missionaries want to get someplace. Well, if it's on the coast, it's easy for them to get to. If it's on a navigable river, it's easy for them to get to. But it's also easy for trade companies and ships and other things like that to get to. So maybe they didn't cause the economic development. They just went to places that were easier to get to. Or missionaries want their children to survive. So they go to this place and everybody dies. So they don't continue going there. So they go this place and people live. So then they keep going here. And then you get more missionaries here in this place that's healthy rather than this place that's unhealthy. And then I look later on and I go like, look, missionaries and health. No missionaries and unhealth. Well, maybe the health moved them to the place that was healthy. You see, they didn't cause it. So how do we deal with that issue? I spend tons and tons and tons of time dealing with that. One of the things that I've done is I divided the world. You can't really see them too well, but see the thing on the right? I've divided the world into very, very small boxes. And... I know all kinds of information about those boxes. The rainfall, the temperature, the disease prevalence for malaria, the disease prevalence for yellow fever, the soil quality, the drainage, all kinds of factors like that which are related to disease, are related to access. How far it is from the coast, how far from a navigable river, how far it is, the, the slope of all kinds of things. And, and then it's related to Local level poverty. So if you look at the bottom, this is local level poverty in Mexico where you're looking at the poverty in that local area, for example. And so you're trying to measure the factors that shape where missionaries go so you can remove that statistically. Now, there's other ways we can get at it as well, but that's one thing that I do. Um, Now, why do I think Protestant missionaries were important? Protestant missionaries were crucial to the spread of mass education around the world, particularly education um, for women and poor people. I'll talk about this later, so I'm just giving the brief outline now later, and then I'll go into the historical detail detail in a little bit. Um, They were crucial for the spreading of printing and newspapers around the world and creating of written languages. They were crucial to the spread of nonviolent social movement organizations. So like when we think like if you want to protest something, you make a boycott and you make petitions and you make a march and you do these various types of things. Well, those things are historically new. People haven't always thought, oh, we do a boycott. Um, Those are things that develop over time and are introduced. Um, They were also crucial to colonial reform movements, particularly when they were not financed by the government or financed by white settlers. And I'll talk about that as well all of which dispersed power to non-elites. And in context of competition, once Protestant missionaries initiated these things, then other groups start to do similar types of things. So once Protestant missionaries initiate mass education, other religious groups go like, we don't want our kids to become Protestant. And so then they will start schools and other things like that to compete with them. Or you start getting low-caste people in India converting, and then all of a sudden Hindus go like, oh, we don't want them to become Christians, so we better provide social services for them as well. Okay? And so then that disperses power more broadly and has long-term economic and political context. Now, there's some historical complexity. Missionaries are human beings just like any other, any group, okay? No, I am not perfect, you are not perfect, nobody's perfect. We all do bad things, and missionaries sometimes do bad things and did some bad things. So when I'm measuring statistically, I'm getting their average effect, It's not negating that some people did some bad stuff. It's just saying this is the average effect that they had, and most of that is actually quite astoundingly good. But 
there's still plenty of bad things that people have done. Now, it's particularly, it's worse when missionaries were sponsored by, by the state, by the government, <clears throat> or when they were sponsored by white settlers. Um, so Native American missions in the United States are not quite as positive as some others, partially because they're being sponsored by the people who are moving in and taking over the Indian land. Okay? Now, they did do a lot to defend the Cherokee and other things. I, I can get into the details if you want, but it's less of, they're less radical when they're funded by lo- local white settlers. Um, sometimes Protestant missions accentuated ethnic violence. Now, often people who convert are the people who feel abused in a local context, which then attracts missionaries to places where there's already tension. But it also then sometimes created religious tension in addition to the attention that was already there, and it sometimes accentuated religious violence. But that's particularly in Asia. Um, some missionaries were racist. Now, we might think, why are you, if you're racist, are you going to, to, to minister to people, etc.? But we are human beings, okay? Now, the racism is strongest um, in the mission movement in the late 19th and early 20th century. So if you want to find really terrible things, that's the time to find it. Um, but it's more among highly educated missionaries and younger missionaries during that time period. The, young, the older missionaries and less educated missionaries were less racist. Okay? They learned the racism in university. So in the late 19th century, you had scientific racism. You had this... It was taught in universities that there was this racial hierarchy and that some theories were polygenous, meaning not every human being is the same species. They're different species. Um, and other things were sort of evolutionary hierarchy that sort of like different groups stopped evolving earlier and whites were at the top of the evolutionary hierarchy. But this is what was taught in universities. This was not missionaries coming up with these ideas. And, and they were the resistant people. So missionaries had the idea that everyone was created by God. So like the idea that they are different species was harder to deal with. It doesn't, doesn't mean they didn't justify racism. They did, as in the South and the United States. But <clears throat> they were on the egalitarian fringe during the colonial period. They were much more egalitarian than the other groups that were involved uh, in uh, colonialism, etc. And there's change over time. So the missionary movement is not constant. What people are arguing for and what they do changes. And I can get into some of that if you want. But um, I know the history uh, quite in detail, but um, I don't have time. We're talking about the whole world over a couple hundred years, so more than that, actually. Um, so we're not going to get into all the details of the changes. We're going to get the average general effects, the general patterns. And to the main, the main effects that I've, I've looked at lots of different things, and the main effect of missionaries on all kinds of outcomes is amazingly positive. So <clears throat> missionaries and education. <clears throat> we tend to think that it's just normal. Everyone should go to school. Everyone should get education. Everyone should know how to read. But for the vast majority of history, in the vast majority of societies, people did not think that. That idea that everyone should read is a uniquely Christian and a particularly Protestant idea. And not only in Europe and North America, but also in the mission movement, they pioneer the concepts and ideas of mass education. So education around the world was mostly done in either a foreign language or an archaic version of the language. So in Europe, it was done in Latin. In Chinese, it was done in Wenli, which is classical Chinese, which if you can't understand, it's, it's totally different from spoken Chinese. In India, it would be in Sanskrit. In Sri Lanka, or, or it would be in Pali. It would be, these, the, the languages that people did not speak. In the Middle East, it was in classical Arabic, Quranic Arabic, which is like reading Chaucer. 
if you've ever read Chaucer. If without a translation next door, you don't know what it means. Okay? So that's what education was in. So most students, you had a private tutor. Wealthy families hired private tutors. You would memorize the text. Then you would be taught the meaning of the the text. Then you would be taught to read the text. And, but... You, you memorized the sounds first because you couldn't understand what it meant. You see, this is a very expensive education system. So for Protestants, they wanted everybody to be able to read the Bible in their own language, in the vernacular. So they pioneer education in language that ordinary people speak. They couldn't afford to have tutors for everybody, <clears throat> so they pioneer classroom techniques. So now we think it's normal. You divide people into groups according to ability and age, and you have texts that are written specifically for them at their, lo- their ability, of, like children's books. Okay, That's a radically new idea that's developed in order to do mass education. Um, and they spread that around the world. So they're the first people to make printing books and primers and other things like that all around the world. They're the first people to introduce education that's divided into classes all around the world. Then other people copy that over time. And now it doesn't seem uniquely Protestant. Most people think, oh, of course everyone should read. Everyone should go to school. Everyone should use these techniques. But those were developed and pioneered for religious reasons. <clears throat> You can especially see this in, in, in terms of women's education and education for the poor. Most people did not, around the world, didn't think women needed to read, and they certainly didn't think poor people needed to read, and certainly not poor women. Okay? There would be a small number of elite women who could read, but a very small number, mostly in aristocracy. <clears throat> Missionaries also <clears throat> pioneered spreading of practical education. Most education was classical texts. They pioneered uh, practical education, math, science, engineering, etc., They taught new economic concepts and skills. In many societies, people didn't have a concept of private property. Missionaries were worried that once they had contact with white settlers, people would confiscate their land. So you have missionaries teaching people, for example, in Botswana, concepts of private property and introducing currency, like money, before they had contact with white settlers because they knew as soon as the white settlers came, they were going to have to deal with cash, so they needed to have to figure out how this thing works. So they're training people in concepts that they're going to have to deal with once they have this encounter with um, other people who were less concerned about their interests and more interested in just taking their land away. Um, They taught new skills, carpentry, masonry, scientific farming. They introduced new crops. So they introduced cocoa, like for chocolate, to West Africa, which is the main crop there. They introduced cotton to Uganda. They introduced pears and apples to China. They introduced all kinds of these new crops around the world um, where they're trying to help the local communities. They introduced scientific concepts of scientific farming around the world. People didn't study. Like, elites, it, education was for elite people. It was not for people who worked with their hands. Okay? And so then... Elite people were studying classical texts and theory and government and things like that. They were not studying like, well, if we plant rice this way, does it work better? Or if we plant rice this way, does it work better? They're not doing like scientific plots and things like that. Missionaries were introducing those kinds of things all around the world. Now, what's the statistical evidence of their legacy? Sorry, I'm a little bit behind. This is going to be really hard for you to see. Uh, Because we're so small and so far away. Basically, what I'm doing here is I show that where missionaries went 
had on average less education before they arrived and more education after they arrived. Okay, so you, you probably can't read it, but like um, you'll notice if you could see the, the, the coefficients change sign. So this is negative. So this is positive. If you have missionaries in 19, 1839, there's a positive effect on education in 1870. If you get missionaries after 1870, that were not, there were no missionaries in 1870, missionaries arrived later, there's a negative relationship with education earlier, but a positive relationship with education later. And the negative, positive, negative, positive. So like where they're going on average has less education before they arrive and more education after they arrive. So if they really were going to places that were more educated, it would be positive all the way along. It's not. Okay? Now, you can also look at it through natural experiments. One of these natural experiments is what's uh, uh, Togo in West Africa, East and West Togo. Now, Togo was a German colony. It's in west coast of West Africa. This is now Ghana. It was called the Gold, Gold Coast. In World War I, the French and British took Togo away from the, the Germans, and the British took this part, and the French took the right part. They took this part, and the British took that part and joined it with Ghana. Okay? Now, the French at this time in history were very anti-clerical. They didn't like missionaries at all, and they tried to restrict them. The Protestants at this point in history... Uh, had religious liberty. Now, earlier on, they didn't allow missionaries at all. They had to be forced to allow missionaries. So this idea that like missionaries and colonialism just went hand in glove, it's much more complicated than that. The, the missionaries, the British blocked missionaries until 1813, until they got forced to allow them. And then they only allowed British missionaries until 1833, until they got forced to allow non-British missionaries by having the British East Indian Company charter blocked. Okay, so it's not like they were yah-yah missionary. They weren't. They got forced to. Same thing with the grant and aid system. The, the British financed education, but it was something that they were forced to do. It wasn't like, oh, we're going to go over there and spend lots of money educating people in India before we're educating people in England. I mean, you had state-sponsored education in British India before you had it in England by about 60 years because the missionaries pressured for it. They lobbied for it. Okay, well, anyways, uh, I got off off track a little bit. But uh, the French didn't like missionaries. They tried to keep them out. The British at this point allowed missionaries, but they were trying to keep them out of Muslim areas. So they made a line, and they wouldn't let missionaries in northern Ghana, except for a few Catholics that got kicked out, and they allowed them to stay up there in the north. So they moved over the border here. So there's a few Catholics up here. But Protestants are not allowed in the north. They're only allowed in the south. Um, The French are, are restricting missionaries all along and trying to do state education. Okay, so now we find differences along the border. However, if the differences are caused by... Um, sorry, I went too far. If the differences are caused by British colonialism, we would expect the difference to be consistent all across the border because the British colonialism is on all along the border and it'd be lower on the French side. If it's caused by missionaries, we'd expect more education in southern area, but not in the northern area relative to France. And that's what we find, the French colony, that's what we find. So these are looking at the schools. It's hard to see. The black dots are government schools, which are allowed in the north. And these boxes, things are mission schools. Notice all these mission schools that moved into that area after the British took it over. So then what's the implications of that? When we get to the border, we notice this is the British side of the border, this is the French side of the border. This is the British side of the border. This is the French side of the border. Notice there is a jump right at the border in terms of education 
in what used to be the same German colony among the same ethnic group. So it's not like the ethnic group, this ethnic group's like education, this ethnic group doesn't like, it's the same group. Both sides, you get to the border, there's a jump. Now this jump is only in the south. In the north, it's a flat line, okay? Which suggests that missionaries were the ones who caused the educational difference. Now we can see a similar pattern if we look at subnational variation in India, both in education and health. Areas where there's more Christians, areas where there are historically more missions are better off in India in terms of education and health. So if we look, this is again small, but and you can't even read the numbers, but if we're looking at, for example, female literacy, the highest female literacy in India is in Kerala, down here in the south, and then up here in Mizoram, and then in Goa, and then in Nagaland. And you go like, what the heck? Okay, that's not the center of trade. That's not the center of government. That's not the center of anything. These places up here were hunter-gatherer societies that didn't have any written language before the late 19th century, which missionaries gave. I mean, these are cannibals, honestly, in, in the 19th century. They, they didn't have a written language. And now they're the highest female literacy rates in India. What's going on here? Okay, then you look at infant mortality. Okay. And then you're going, the best infant mortality rate in India, Nagaland, Kerala, Goa, Mizoram, Manipur. You're going like, what the heck? Where do these places come from? Okay, what they are, they're the centers of Christianity in India and the centers of missionary activity per capita historically in India. Okay? You can say the same thing in terms of mass printing. Because missionaries wanted people to be able to read the Bible in their own language, that required that they be able to print in the vernacular, in the local language that ordinary people could speak. And it had to be cheap. It had to be inexpensive that ordinary people could buy. So, we often think that printing is a technology that once people knew how to do, they'll be like, hey, that's valuable, of course I'm going to print. But historically, that is not true. The adoption of printing happened for religious reasons. I would say almost exclusively in terms of adoption. Both in terms of adoption printing initially and in terms of transforming from being an elite technology to being a mass technology. So the earliest printing in the world was not in Europe. It was in East Asia. China, Korea, and Japan had printing for at least, for more than 800 years before Europe did, including metal, movable font type, about 70 years before Gutenberg. Okay? It was not invented in Europe. Now, it didn't have the same consequences in Europe, as in East Asia as in Europe, but it did have important consequences. Now, the early printing in East Asia was initially for making merit. So the earliest printing records that we have, Buddhist sutras, if you copy a a sutra, you get merit. And then maybe you have a better life or or have a better next life. So if you could copy it, then you would get merit. And then someone figured out, hey, you know what we can do? 
We can put it on a wooden block and we can go boing, 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 boing. We can print like tons of these things and then we're like making super mega merit and then we can just bury them in a stupa and like, woohoo, we got merit. Okay, so think of it like a Tibetan prayer wheel. Like if I say a prayer, I get merit. So I'm going to put thousands of them in this little thing, go weir, 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 and swirl them around and I get like a bazillion prayers. Okay, so <clears throat> that's how printing started to make merit. The earliest printing we have are all Buddhist sutras that are buried. They were not for reading. Then someone figured out, hey, look, we can read these things. So then you get these various Mahayana Buddhist sects that are competing with each other, and they're printing their sutra. You should read this sutra, not this sutra. And they competed with each other, and they spread printing. However, you only get printing in Mahayana Buddhist societies, nowhere else. Okay? So the Chinese, the Japanese, the Koreans, and the Vietnamese print. The Mongols invade. They're sort of a shamanistic thing. Parts of them adopt Buddhism. Those Mongols print. Other Mongols become Muslim, and those Mongols don't print. They print paper money, and they print amulets. So it's using the same technique. People didn't like the paper money, so they stopped, and they liked the amulet, so they kept doing it. But people are not reading them. They're rolling up and sticking them in a pouch. Okay, Tibetans, Vajrayana Buddhists, a type of Mahayana Buddhism, print. But if you, go to, if you go to Cambodia, if you go to Thailand, if you go to Burma, if you go to Sri Lanka, they're Buddhist. They're Theravada Buddhist. They don't print. If you're Muslim, so like the Uyghurs who are in Western China, they used to be a combination of Christian, Buddhist, and Manichaean. When they were that, they printed. When they converted to Islam, they stopped. Okay? It wasn't like people in Asia had no contact with China until the 19th century. Okay? There was tons of trade with China. Muslims traded with China. Hindus traded with China. Chinese went to India. Chinese, like, like, there was all this trade all around Asia. These were very wealthy societies relative to Europe. But nobody copied them. They copied the techniques for printing books, and they used them for printing cloth. So you have amazingly detailed woodblock printing in India and in the Middle East. Much better printing into the 19th century of cloth than in Europe. They had better dyes in India than in Europe. They had more dyes in India, way before Europe. Okay? But they didn't print books. They printed cloth, including detailed designs and including words sometimes on cloth, but not books. Now, they could have used the same technique. It's the same thing to print books. They didn't. Now, elites wanted to control texts. If I'm the only one who can read, if I'm the only one who have the book, you have to come to me and I tell you what it says. That gives me power. I don't want to undermine that power. If I make education easy so lots of people can read, if I make books widely available so lots of people can have them, that undermines my power so elites all over the world resisted mass printing. If you didn't have a religious reason for it, you didn't do it. Now, if we look at printing in the Middle East, why does it start, other than one exception, in the 19th century? <clears throat> they had plenty of contact with China, Europeans had printed in all the major languages of Asia by the 1600s and had exported texts in them. You have Jews who flee persecution in Spain and they print in, in Palestine, in Turkey, and in Central Asia. Nobody copies them. Catholic missionaries come. They print small numbers of texts in order to train elites and to train local priests. Nobody copies them. <clears throat> you have Eastern Christians that get trained by Catholic missionaries how to print. They print... Small numbers of texts, again, only for training priests, not to evangelize. Nobody copies them. The Portuguese missionary, Port, Port, or 
Jesuit missionaries gave functioning printing presses to the Persian emperor and the Mughal emperor with vernacular fonts, and nobody used them. It wasn't they didn't know how. The Dutch East India Company, the French East India Company, and the British East India Company all printed in India and in various places in Asia. Nobody copied them. It wasn't until the 19th century when Protestant missionaries came and started to print tens of thousands of texts in the vernacular and try to use those texts to convert people that all of a sudden people in India and the Middle East, etc. go like, Woo! oh no, we don't want them to become Protestant, we better start printing. And so they print in competition. But still, now, I won't show you the statistics, but, <clears throat> and this is the printing press, the Baptist printing press in, in Calcutta, India. Um, like the Sarampur Trio printed hundreds of thousands of texts in more than 40 languages in 30 years. I mean, like, they were just insane in terms of the amount of printing they did. And that's what spurred other people to copy. <coughs> Missionaries were also crucial into the spreading of nonviolent social movement organizations. Now, as I said before, we tend to think, like, if you think something's wrong, well, then make a protest, make a petition campaign, make placards and go march around, or have a rally and make people sign pledges against doing things, etc. Make these organizations that have boards of directors and speakers and newsletters and etc., etc. Well, those are very new ideas. They developed, for the most part, in the late 19th, I mean, the late 18th and early 19th century. Um... Social scientists, who tend to be a pretty secular lot, um, argue, oh, this really has to do with sort of the rise of the expansion of the state into people's life worlds and the rise of the middle class and the bourgeoisie, um, etc., which is bogus, uh, at least I argue, because the places they develop and the people who develop them are these nonconformist missional Protestants. So... If you look at the, the people who develop temperance, abolitionism, prison reform, all these movements, they're Quakers, evangelicals, and nonconformists in England. It's the same, people who are, the same people who are leading abolitionism and temperance and all these movements are the same people who are leading the missionary movement in England and, and the United, northern United States. The South is a little bit different. Um, it also becomes later in terms of getting these organizations too, though. Um, and they happen concurrently in England... The northeastern United States, the western frontier frontier of the United States, India, and South Africa among the Tsosha. Okay? So you're having African tribal people who are doing petitions and marches and boycotts in the early 19th century. When you're having these movements around England, etc., it's because it's the same people, it's these religious groups who develop these techniques for mobilizing religious movements and missions, and then they're just transferring these techniques and using them for mobilizing political movements that they think are important. Okay? <clears throat> if you look at a place like India, for example, missionaries go, not only they're trying to convert people, but they see things in society that they think are wrong. So the Sarampur trio, who are Baptists who are in Sarampur, or Calcutta area, um, which was a Danish colony at the time, (coughs) once they get allowed to enter British colonial territory, they see some things that they think are wrong. So when a man died, the wife was supposed to burn herself alive on his funeral pile. Now, that wasn't happened all over, but in this region it happened. Um, And the missionaries thought it was bad, and so they tried to mobilize a campaign to stop it. Um, 
And they start writing in their, the first Indian vernacular newspaper, the Friend of India, which was a missionary newspaper, um, against this and mobilizing protests to try and get it banned. Now, Ramahan Roy, who was an Indian who originally worked with them, he translated the Bible into Bengali with William Carey. He originally became a Baptist. Then he thought the Baptists were too conservative, so he became a Unitarian. And then he decided that he wanted to sort of revitalize Indian religion, so he became a reforming Hindu. And so at that time, he wanted to get rid of what he considered the accretions in Hinduism, the bad things that had sort of come into Hinduism that he didn't think were real Hinduism. And so he wanted to get rid of Sati, but he didn't want people to convert. So he creates uh, uh, Brahma Samaj, an organization which is trying to revitalize Hinduism and reform things like Sati. Then you get other people, but copying the missionary techniques. And he worked quite directly with them. And he's debating with them and arguing with them. But on this he agreed. Um, then you get other people who want to defend Sati. They form Kalkata Dharma Sabha, another organization. But again, they're copying the same missionary tactics at the same time and copying them. Okay. But if it was really development or the rise of the state, these things happen much later in continental Europe and they happen much, much later in southern Europe than they're happening in India, etc. Or in the western frontier of the United States. Um, these become crucial in terms of various reform and nationalist movements around the world. So when people form the Indian National Congress Party in India, the leadership comes out of these groups like Arya Samaj, Brahma Samaj, etc., which were originally developed to do these social reforms and to compete with missionaries, which unfortunately means political parties got aligned along religious lines, which created tensions in India and elsewhere as well. But um, originally the British allowed them because they didn't like the missionaries. Um, and it, th- as long as they're competing with missionaries, it's fine. But then over time, they became big. They got crossed in the regional networks. They had newspapers. They had identifiable leaders. And they became too powerful. And they started to become more and more anti-colonial. And initially, they're trying to expand positions in the colonial administration, more jobs for Indians because they were restricted from the top jobs. And over time, they become more and more nationalist. But by that time, they're very difficult for the British to crush. And then those become the foundation for political parties, which means you get early political parties in British colonies because of this sort of missionary political mobilization. Missionaries were also crucial in terms of limiting colonial abuses. Um, Any major colonial reform movement that I have studied, missionaries have been crucial to it. I have not found one in the 19th or early 20th century where that was not true. Um, Now, most missionaries were not anti-colonial. They were not going out there to be political radicals. A few of them were, but most of them were not. They backed into these movements over time, but they became crucial to them. Because when Europeans or Americans, etc., were abusive, it angered local people against Christianity because they associated Christianity with Europe and North America. So then missionaries sort of, not only do they care about people and they're working with them directly, but also, in order to do their religious work, they have incentive to fight these abuses. So they became crucial in developing and expanding the concept of trusteeship, which sounds paternalistic to our ears, but it was better than the other options, which basically is saying the only justification for colonialism is for the uplift of local people, so for eventual independence. So this idea that, like, We're here to sort of train people so that they will become civilized, quote-unquote, like us, and then eventually they can be independent, okay? Uh, It sounds paternalistic. It is paternalistic. But it's better than the other option of just, like, we're going to just take the stuff that we want and screw them. Um, They became crucial to... I mean, that's a little oversimplification, but, you know, basically. Uh, 
they were crucial to the rise of immediate abolitionism. So if you want me to talk about the role of missions and how it spurred the movement for immediate abolitionism in the Caribbean, um, in England, which then spread around the world, um, I can talk to you about it. But it's, it's basically a competition where missionaries are not allowed to have access to slaves. And they don't have permission to work among them. They start to train slaves how to read and organizing them into congregations and get lay black leaders over groups uh, because there are not enough missionaries to, to pastor all the slaves. Those are the people who lead the slave uprisings, which then the missionaries get blamed for. And then they try and kick out all the missionaries and burn down all the churches and ban the missionaries from teaching blacks to read, etc. And then the missionaries start lobbying and you get this gradual radicalization over time which leads the people in England and the northern United States eventually to believe that missions and slavery are incompatible. Um, after the success of getting immediate abolitionism, getting abolition in, in, in all British colonies, which came at great expense to the British and led to a recession both in the Caribbean and in England, it was not done for financial reasons, regardless of what some people say. There's very good historical evidence about this. Um, they created what was called the Select Committee on Aboriginal Tribes to try and reform British colonial policy around the world. So they did surveys of missionaries around the world in the mid-19th century and tried to figure out the abuses that were happening and tried to find, find ways to reform that. Now, over time, missionary influence waned. Their influence was greatest in the mid-19th century. Um, over time, you get scientific racism, you get other people copying the organizational and political mobilization tactics that the missionaries are using, and so you get former slave owners and other people like that who then start to use the same tactics to try and restrict them. So missionary influence becomes weaker over time, but um, during the mid, early and mid-19th century, century, they had radical influence on um, British colonial policy. Uh, these are just some of the people who were involved in the immediate abolitionism missionaries. Um, and then in creating the Aborigines Protection Society. Uh, for reforming British colonial policy. What happened here? How do I make you get back big? I don't know how I made you small. It's coming. I hope it starts in the right place. <clears throat> Anyways, I can keep talking. Well, I'm not in the right place, but I can get there. I don't know why it shut down. Are we big? There we go. So we're going to have the speed tour. Woohoo! Oh, there we go. Back, back, back. <coughs> this was the stated purpose of the Aborigines Protection Society. To investigate what measures ought to be adopted with respect to the native inhabitants of countries where British settlements are made and to the neighboring tribes in order to secure them the due observation of justice and the protection of their rights to promote the spread of civilization among them and to lead them to the peaceful and voluntary reception of the Christian religion. Okay, so you can see the motivation for reforming British colonial policy was missions. They're saying... We, I mean, it can sound paternalistic, but they're saying we're studying these, these things and trying creating pressure to reform British colonialism because we want people to voluntarily and peacefully accept Christianity. You see? And this, they're saying this explicitly. Now, they also facilitated local movements. It's not just foreign people, foreign people who are reforming British colonialism. <clears throat> but the British are responding to local pressure movements. Now... 
By spreading these social movement organization forms and tactics, local people gained resources that they could non-violently pressure the British to reform. And they did this very effectively, and sometimes with missionary resistance. But it allowed both this missionary link reforming through the British pressure in England and other colonial powers, but also through the resources that they spread, which allowed local people to mobilize for the things that they wanted on their own, whether or not missionaries agreed with them, it had this dual effect of reforming British colonialism and making it uh, better than other colonizers. And we can see that on all kinds of outcomes. Um, Now, what's the statistical evidence for this? (coughs) Again, this is small. I... And many of you don't know how to read statistics, which is fine. But basically, this is showing you, if we're looking at something like low corruption, rule of law, or government efficiency, the more missionaries you had, it has a strong positive effect on having lower levels of corruption, the higher rule of law, and greater government efficiency. Okay? Controlling for all kinds of other things that other people talk about. Now, the, you can't see it, and we could, you know... But believe me, these are, this is, this is not, I'm just not talking out of my head. Um, and what's the statistical evidence in terms of, say, economic development? These also had economic consequences. So if we're looking here, again, it's small. What we're doing here is I'm, I'm controlling for economic development in 1820. And if we got missionaries in 1831, I mean, I'm 1839, controlling for the level of economic development before the missionaries we see that for each additional mission station in 1839, people, by 1870, people, everyone in that society on average is making $246 more per mission station. Okay, that, that effect is huge. It's so big it scares me, actually. Okay? This is in current dollars. It's not in those dollars from that day. That would be crazy. This is already big enough. Okay? So it scares me a little bit that something's going on, but I am controlling for the level of economic development before they arrive. Okay, so these effects are huge. Well, now next I take, this is the dependent variable here. This is what we're predicting, 1870. So now I'm controlling for economic development in 1870 and looking at economic development in 1913. And if we got a mission station in 1881, for each mission station, everyone in the society on average is making $141 more. Okay, we just control for the thing that predicted it before. And then we're doing it again. Um, so then we're looking later. So this is missionaries in 1903. So this is later than this. Um, if missionaries are just going to places that are more developed, so again, we're looking at 1913 development. Notice this is $83 per mission station. This is 141 So this is closer to that. If missionaries were just going to places that were more economically developed, we'd expect this coefficient to be bigger. It's not. It's smaller. If they're causing it, they have less time to cause economic development. We'd expect this coefficient to be smaller. It is. Okay? So it's logical. It's making sense. Um, now, if we take that dependent variable... And now we're controlling for economic development in 1913, and we're having, this is missionaries, not mission stations, uh, number of missionaries per 100,000 people in 1923. For each additional missionary, everyone in society is making $48 more by 1950, and $512 more by 1970. Okay? These, these effects are, like, when economists look at this, they're like, oh my goodness, that's crazy. Like, this is really, really, really important. And so you've gotten... Literally, dozens of economists who are now studying the impact of missionaries at Harvard, MIT, Princeton, really good schools, because they think, see things like this and they go like, oh, this is crazy, okay? And they're doing some really wonderful, amazing stuff, some of which I will show you. 
Here's one of them. Now, this one is a little bit annoying because I told them this idea and then they don't mention that I told it to them. But <clears throat> it's still good because, like, I'm a Christian, so when I do stuff, people think, oh, you're just biased, you like missionaries. These people are totally secular. So missionaries, the British didn't like missionaries lurking with Muslims, so they tried to keep them out of Muslim areas. And so in Nigeria, they made some lines. And so there's a later line. This is an early line in the south. And then later on, they let them cross that line and go further north and made another line, which missionaries were not allowed to go north of. The advantage of this earlier line is some of it is straight. Okay, nothing in nature is straight. This is not corresponding to a river or a mountain or anything. Okay, so we have this straight line. Missionaries have to be down here. They're not allowed up here. This straight line cuts across three ethnic communities. So what they did, following what I told them, uh, is to collect data on eight kilometers, ten kilometers north of this line and ten kilometers south of this line. Okay? So it's the same ethnic group. You're looking at the same ethnic group in the same province, in the same country, across a line that disappeared 80 years ago and no longer exists. Actually, more than 80 years ago. Okay? And you currently find the people south of that line have more education. They're more likely to graduate from high school, college, read English, read math. I mean, have high math ability to complete a primary school. They have better health. They have more durable goods. They have better housing quality. They make more money, and they have better occupations. The same ethnic group, the same state, the same country on this line that no longer exists, which is straight and doesn't correspond to anything on the ground. So unless you find something else that was not allowed to cross that line, that means missionary caused that differences. Okay? Here's a better one or another one. So there's a bunch of people in China now who are studying this, also economists. These people are in Hong Kong, University of Science and Technology. These things are Beijing University. Um, None of them are religious. None of them. Okay, but they saw this stuff and they're like, oh, let's do it. So these people, this is a great thing. So they said, well, missionaries did disaster relief. So when there was a flood or a drought, they would go to do disaster relief and then they would stay and they would build schools and they'd open hospitals and they would convert people. So you're getting more missionaries and more conversions that are being caused by a drought or a flood, which is unlikely to help your economy. So what they do is missionaries were not allowed in China before 1848, I believe. So if you had a drought and flood before 1848, the first part of the 19th century, is negatively related to economic development now. Missionaries were kicked out of China in 1949. So if you had a drought or flood in China after 1949, it has a negative effect on economic development now. In the late 19th century, missionaries were allowed, but they had restricted mobility. In the early 20th century, missionaries were allowed, but they had free mobility. If you look at the change in missionaries or the change in converts, the predicted level of missionaries, the predicted level of converts, based on droughts and floods in the early 19th century, you have a positive effect on economic development now, which is moderately large. If you have the change in missionaries or the change in converts, in early 20th century where missionaries had freedom, it has a very strong positive effect on economic development now. So unless of you, you can think of a reason why droughts and floods hurt you before 1848 and after 1949, but helped you both in the late 19th and the early 20th century, then you have proved that missionaries have developed China economically. Okay? All these people are secular. 
Now, this is some of my own stuff. <coughs> but again, you're looking at economic development now. Per This is the log of missionaries in 1923. $655 more per capita per missionary in 1923. Okay, now they're not, it's not one missionary causing all these things. There, there's lots of other people. Like, missionaries initiated things, but lots of local Christians and other people are doing most of the work at the schools and the hospitals and other things that are causing these effects. And it's also spurring change in other people's behavior. So Hindus, Muslims, etc., Buddhists, are doing work in response to the missionaries, which has these economic effects. It's not just the one missionary who's causing these things, but it's associated with these things. Okay? Now... Same thing in terms of political outcomes. This is the, the, the one that got the big attention early on, um, which became out of the American Political Science Review uh, in, in uh, 19, I mean, 2012, um, which is the best journal in political science. And at this point has won eight outstanding article awards. So the best article in comparative politics, the best article in comparative democratization, best article in various things um, from the American Sociological Association and the American Political Science Association. Um, again, this is too small because this is too far away and you can't see it. But <clears throat> these are columns. Each one of them is a regression. In this first regression, this is a standard model prior to my research on the predictors of democracy. So, for example, British colonies are more democratic, blah, 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 blah. Places with more Muslims are less democratic. Places with more oil, less democratic, etc. Okay? And you're explaining basically 40, 41.2% of the variation in democracy. Okay? Everything that's yellow is statistically significant. That's what we consider meaningful. Then we control for Protestant missionary activity. Notice, everything in one of those goes away. They're no longer significant. Only Protestant missions matter. It's explaining half of the variation in democracy. Okay? 50.4%. Then we try Catholic missions. It doesn't predict anything. Then we drop all these variables, except for Dutch colonialism, which I can explain to you why if you, if you, if you care. Um, and so just Protestant missions is explaining by itself half of the variation in democracy. Okay? It's in the best journal in political science. Um, these effects, the, the, the level of evidence I had to do, give in order to get that in the APSR is crazy. Anyone I've talked about has never heard anyone going through the craziness that I went to in terms of the evidence. I had to have given... 192 pages of supporting material for that. Okay, for an article. That's like, here's a, here's a book to support this article. <clears throat> okay? <clears throat> so, I mean, it's not these, I'm just not talking over my head. These, the, the evidence for these things are very, 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 very strong. Very strong. So, <clears throat> in conclusion, Christianity, particularly Protestantism, has profoundly profoundly shaped what we consider to be modernity. I put that in air quotes because I don't think there's one modernity. I think what we call modernity is actually a cultural product. Um, and religious incentives were crucial to it. So, for example, in terms of printing, without religious motivation, for the most part, until the late 19th and early 20th century, people did not adopt printing. And even when they had printing as in East Asia... Missionary printing printed, print, transformed elite printing into mass printing. Missionaries dominated printing in 19th century China. They dominated it. The biggest Chinese printing presses in the early, late 19th and early 20th century was actually the Methodist press that got sold, 
because they were printing too many secular things and they thought, we're trying to be missionaries and we're running a business. And so they just sold it. The same thing in Singapore, the same thing in India. So like these big secular presses actually are missionary presses that got sold. Religious competition spread these things. So what originally was a Christian or a Protestant idea, now most people think, but because you get religious competition. So missionaries start, oh, you need to have mass education, then other people copy them, and now Catholics, Muslims, Buddhists, Hindus all think that people should have mass education. But historically, they did not. Um, And religion is crucial in, in some ways because it also spreads between class groups. So there are Christians, for example, or Buddhists or anyone who are different class groups. And so it has this link that cuts across the interests of elite classes and helps break up uh, uh, elite power in some ways. And also it's important because no one can monopolize souls. People can monopolize resources. They can monopolize education. They can't monopolize souls. Individuals retain the ability to have private belief. And exploited groups are more likely to convert. So Dalits in India, more likely to convert. Uh, Any group that's being exploited is more likely to convert, which then forces the dominant group to either adjust and help impoverished and marginalized groups, or they will lose them. And so it has this effect of transferring resources to help poor and marginalized communities. It also has important theoretical implications. This is more maybe for social scientists than maybe you all, I don't know. You all probably believe that culture matters. A lot of social scientists think it's all about class structure or the state or various types of things which they consider institutions or structural or hard. And what I argue, it's sure, class structure shapes things, but so do religious beliefs for example, the idea that everyone has to read the Bible in their own language to have access to God's word. That idea transformed the world. It also is crucial in terms of religious liberty. Lots of people who maybe are concerned about the poor or are concerned about political rights are not concerned about protecting the right of religious freedom and particularly the right to convert. They think, oh, that's just protecting some radical, freaky, religious nutcases. But you can show historically and statistically that when religious liberty, including the right to convert, is restricted, it has profound economic, medical, and political consequences for society. Restricting religious liberty is not just restricting religious groups. It's restricting economic and political conditions as well. And so even people who are not interested in religion should be concerned about religious liberty. Thank you. We have time for a few questions, and so I'm looking, Emily over here and Samantha over here have microphones, and so if you have a question, please stand and and, uh, say your name and briefly ask your question and then hand the microphone back to one of the ladies after you've asked the question. Who would have the uh, the first question that you'd want to ask Dr. Woodbury? Here we have, here, Preston. 
Uh, this is Preston Dunphy. Mm -hmm. You said there was an outlier in the group, the Dutch uh, colonialism. Yes. Could you address that? Sure. Thank you. Thank you, Preston. Um, <clears throat> the Dutch had very early missions, much earlier than the British did. But um, the Dutch controlled them, much like Catholic colonizers controlled Catholic missions. So they paid their salaries. They told them exactly where they could go. They, <coughs> to a great extent, used foreign missionaries, particularly German missionaries, so they didn't go back to the Netherlands. They forced them to send back all their letters in open letters on company ships so that they could read them. Um, when they kept them out of Muslim areas. When people, Muslims converted, they gave them over to the Muslim rulers knowing that they would be killed. They moved around the missionaries regularly so that they wouldn't have enough influence, any, a great deal of influence in particular local communities. They prevented religious competition. So they said, okay, you Baptists, you can go here. You, well, most not Baptists, so like, you Lutherans can go here. You Dutch Reformed people can go here. You Catholics can go here. And they kept them separated, preventing religious competition. Um, if they complained, they basically said, shut up or we will kick you out. And so then they would shut up. Um, so there was a much greater control. You didn't get religious liberty in Dutch colonies until 1936. Hmm. Um, and because Dutch colonies get independent shortly after World War II, there's not enough time for the beneficial effects of, of religious liberty to have their effect on Dutch colonies. And so they end up being similar to historically Catholic colonizers, Spanish, Spanish, Portuguese, French, Belgian, Italian. And the British looked different. Next question. First Nicholas and then Dr. George. Thank you. Hi, my name is Nicholas Dawson. Uh, my question, based off of your, uh, your evidence with the, how much a, a region will flourish based off of the missionaries, mm -hmm. what are the ramifications when they leave for other areas? And, and like how much does the culture drop in the, like the influx of positive to negative? Is that a drastic change? Um, or? I, don't, I don't know. And my sense is to the extent that the local ch church is doing similar things, it doesn't matter. I don't, I, I don't think it has to be foreign people doing this. Um, so, <clears throat> like, a school is a school. And religious competition is religious competition. Um, so I don't think it matters that much if foreign missionaries leave as long as there's local Christians who are doing the same type of, type of thing. Um, but over time, too, the, the role of missions becomes weaker for multiple reasons. One, other people start doing it, and the government starts doing education, and private companies start doing printing, and other people learn how to do social movements that are not religious and can learn it from other non-religious organizations. So the unique role of missions reduces. Also, in the fundamentalist modernist split, you get some conservative missionaries who are, who are more leery of being involved in education and in political movements and other things like that. Um, and stop doing some of these types of things which have economic and, and political consequences. Um, so the, the leaving, I think, is less important than the fact that somebody is doing this. Mm -hmm. Dr. George had a question. I, I'm Bob George. You know, your conclusion that Christianity shaped uh, modernity 100% I agree with you, particularly if you look at the 19th century. Mm -hmm. I'm more familiar uh, about what happened, the missionary impact right. uh, in India. Right. Uh, you know, people 
the missionaries printed Bibles in vernacular mm-hmm. languages. That helped a lot, right. you know, the education. When we moved to 20th century and the latter part, historians, not sociologists or politicians, brought criticism on Christendom. Mm-hmm. And Francis Schaeffer right. addressed it eloquently. You know, it is the missionary work that laid the foundation, you know, for civilization, basically. Mm-hmm. So that, that criticism of blaming Christendom, in my opinion, is mm-hmm. totally not justified. Right. Can you, you, you have any comments on that? Uh, Almost anyone who writes missions history or does social science research on missions has to deal with that issue regularly of the sort of very negative view of missionaries in most people's uh, point of view. Um, I think a lot, well, some of it is shaped by nationalist movements. So you get sort of a reaction against colonialism and there were plenty of arrogant things done by colonizers and really bad. I mean, like, when you look at colonialism, some of the things that colonizers did were just atrocious. And even some things that missionaries, some missionaries did were quite bad, too. Um, So there was sort of a reaction against this in terms of nationalist movements that tend to want to not give credit, um, where at least some of the things that were done, and many of the things that were done, were actually positive. Um, (coughs) So there's a reaction to that. I also think there's a heavy influence of Marxism, and so Marxists and other ideas tends to treat religion as sort of superstructure. The, the theology doesn't matter. It's just a justification for power. So a lot of those ideas have shaped things as well. Plus, academia, I think, is pretty secular. In addition, I also think in terms of anthropology, missionaries are sort of uh, removing their study material um, uh, in terms of changing cultures. Uh, I also think there's some, some, some of it can be helpful in terms of there's a certain arrogance there certainly was and there certainly sometimes still is in terms of um, Americans and Europeans on attitudes to other cultures and so there can be a good correct, corrective to that in terms of criticizing things that people did in the past but sometimes that can go too far um, and then you also get a lot of things from movies and novel, novels and things like that. So you get Missioners Hawaii and you get the Poisonwood Bible and you get all these things, which I get asked about all the time. I'm like, it's a novel. Like, it's a, like it's a novel. I, I, uh, this is statistics. Like, I'm, I'm measuring. I'm measuring what they did and measuring their impact. Sure, there maybe was some Poisonwood Bible guy in that data, but if the vast majority of people in there were Poisonwood Bible people, we would find that where missionaries had longer influence and more influence and more freedom to do whatever they wanted, conditions would be a lot worse. And we don't, I, I don't find that on almost anything. Like, there's, a, there's a, a relationship between Protestant missions and ethnic violence in Asia, but that's the one negative result that I've found. Um, the, the, most of the other stuff is quite positive. Just, just out of curiosity, how many of you are familiar with the book or the novel, The Poisonwood Bible? Yeah, I don't think most of the, I'm surprised. I'm surprised. You might just give a, a minute or two assessment. You know, what, what kind of book is the Poisonwood Bible? And what's, what's the point? <coughs> well, I mean, it's, it's a, a disgruntled missionary kid 
who uh, had a very bad relationship with her dad and wrote a diatribe against missions that makes them look like totally... uh, It's a very well-written book uh, that treats missionaries as like uh, almost complete monsters. Uh, That was very popular. Uh, In the late 1990s? In the late 1990s. And there's lots, been lots of different novels and other books like that and movies that play in the fields of the Lord, various things. I mean, there's lots of this type of thing. But a lot of people get their information from those things and then they think that's reality. And it's just more complex than that. One more question. Here we have, right here. Um, is your research going to be published anytime soon? Or? Well, a lot of it is published. Okay. Some of it is not. Okay. Um, <clears throat> so, like, the, Amer- the stuff on democracy is in the American Political Science Review. Um, the, the economic stuff, I'm in the process of trying to get that published. Uh, I, I think maybe what he might have meant was something that on a popular level that, that a, an MDiv student would be have something that's accessible sure. to them. Um, uh, there's a yes, chapter in Perspectives. <clears throat> There is uh, an article in the Journal of Democracy, um, which doesn't have any statistics in it. Uh, there's, some <clears throat> there's some book chapters. But see, <clears throat> different people have different callings. I, my, my calling is to shape academia, not to shape popular stuff. Other people can do that. That's not my role. Um, my role is to sh- shape academia. And to do that, you have to publish in the best journals. And that requires a very sophisticated use of statistical and historical evidence. Um, so if you read the APSR, American Political Science Review article, I mean, it's accessible for something in APSR, but uh, it's, it's a technical journal. Question from, what's that, sir? Did you have a question, George? Yes, you can. Emily, bring down the microphone, please. Dr. Robinson. Thank you, Dr. Woodbury. My, my name is George. Um, I'm sure you're probably familiar with uh, Friedman's The World is Flat mm-hmm. and this concept that globalization has kind of leveled things out across the world. Right. Do you see or would you assume maybe that there's been some point of diminishing returns uh, with regards to uh, kind of the equalization of information in a, an Internet age now that ideas are spreading in different ways? Um, is, in other words, is your research more limited to a historic era that really wouldn't show those same effects in modern day? I think missionaries still have influence, and particularly in really uh, impoverished and difficult places like Afghanistan uh, uh, or Angola or Mozambique, places like that. But they do not have the same profound transformative effects that they had back then. So they are not the people who are introducing mass education for the first time. They're not the people who are introducing the first newspaper and the first printing press and transforming knowledge, quite literally. Like they, they had a profound effect then because they were introducing something that was radically new which transformed knowledge and transformed power structures. 
Now, lots of other people are doing the same things. And at the time, governments, like, you didn't have foreign aid. That was something that actually missionaries helped mobilize. Now you have foreign aid, which missionaries can't compete with. We can't tax. I mean, missionaries can't tax. Governments can't tax. Before, governments didn't think they were supposed to be doing education and medical work and stuff like that. Voluntary associations did that. Religious groups did that. But now the governments do those. And missionaries cannot compete. We can't, the missions can't tax. So the, the mission education, mission medicine, etc. is a niche market now. It's, it's the, the people who are being really underserviced by state and uh, global like UN and other things like that programs. And so if you go to a place like Afghanistan, which is all war-torn and things like that, you go to really obscure places or the people who stay when things are really violent. Often those are the Christian workers, um, and they have an important effect there. They really lay down their lives sometimes. Um, And other people are not willing to do that at the same level. They just are not. Um, So they still have an important effect there. But in terms of, you know, missionaries are not radically changing the GDP of the world at this point. As I listened to Dr. Woodbury, I thought, you know, two years ago we had uh, Dr. Andy Crouch here. And he, his, the point of his lecture was is that uh, Christians have the opportunity not just to engage culture, but to make culture. And I think that what he, Dr. Woodbury has illustrated tonight is that that is definitely what missionaries have <clears throat> done. And we praise the Lord for that. Would you show your appreciation once again for Dr. Woodbury? <clears throat> I I wanted to add one thing. I also think we tend to forget secularists like to take credit for a lot of these things. And we forget that many of them were not caused by the Enlightenment. And they were not spread by Masonic lodges around (laughs) the world. They were not. They were spread by missionaries. They were spread by often very conservative religious people. And so it looks like, oh, you have these secular achievements of democracy and mass education and printing and all these things. But the people who were driving them and spreading those things around the world were often these religious motivated people and the people who pioneer them. Like the Enlightenment is an elite movement. It's not leading to mass education, at least not in the short run. Whereas these revival movements were... 18th and 19th century revival movements were going out and doing mass education among poor people who couldn't read in England and the United States and all around the world. The Enlightenment people were not. They weren't. They were influencing elite circles. Okay? And then we forget that and then we think, oh, people go like, oh, religion is all backwards. They don't do anything positive. They're just causing violence and blah, 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 blah. You know, like this. But historically, if you look at these very carefully... It's had these effects, which then people are later taking credit for. And I think it's important for us to remember that, even if religious schools are not dominating the educational market at this time, they're not. And they never will will be, probably. But they did have this effect, which did profoundly shape the world. All right. Well, God bless you. I'll be careful going home. And good night.